Welcome to the Future of Medicine podcast, where we believe that feeling great and living a long time is possible and that your healthcare should help you get there. I'm your host, Dr. Aaron Wenzel. My hope is simple, that this show will help you along your journey to becoming the healthiest, strongest, and most powerful version of you possible. Now, let's jump into the show. Hey, everybody, before we jump in the show, I just wanted to give you a quick outline. Today's episode is incredible. Uh, Jen Justice and, and I dig into a little bit of context around hormone therapy for women. We talk about um, the difference between optimal and normal. We also talk about synthetic versus bioidentical hormones, clear up a lot of the confusion around those two terms. Uh, and then we do a overview of thyroid, estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone for women. And we talk about who it's for, who it's not for. We also reference why they're important, uh, things to look out for, and optimal levels that we should be targeting if you choose to pursue hormone therapy. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Let's jump in. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Future of Medicine podcast. I'm super excited to get into today's topic, uh, and I am excited to be joined again by the lovely and talented Jen Justice. Um, hi, Jen. Hello. It is great to be back. Yes, of course. It is always great to be in your presence. Oh, why, thank you. <laughs> Likewise. You know, today's episode has really uh, been a long time coming, and um, we alluded a little bit to it in our last episode that we were going to be touching on hormone optimization for women. Um, we have kind of um, been holding up the dam as the demand and the desire that we have had to create content around this subject has been building. Um, but we, uh, as an army of two, uh, you and I, um, you know, we, we have real patients that we take care of and we don't always get to create the amount of content in the timeline that we would, like to, yeah. if we didn't have a real clinic taking care of real people. But this has been long overdue, and I'm excited to do this with you. Um, today's episode is all about hormone optimization for women. Um, are you excited, Jen? I'm so excited. This just, is a topic that you're super into. Yeah, it's near and dear to my heart, and uh -huh. um, just you know, excited to share and impart uh, not only the information, but personal experience and what we see in treating um, women. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's so good. So I think that it is um, for, for the percentage of people who don't know who you are, um, who have been listening to the show, and maybe this is their first, first episode that they're hearing you. Can you give a quick introduction as to who this Amazing Jen Justices. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, I'm Jen Justice. Uh, <laughs> Not uh, to be confused with a Marvel superhero. That's right. That's right. Um, uh, nurse practitioner, uh, recently graduated and passed a board certification exam, but a registered nurse for 23 years, I believe, before that. So um, really excited to uh, be part of Brentwood MD now as a practitioner. Mm -hmm. um, because for the last, what, four and a half years, more in a support role and right. a registered nurse role. So very excited to uh, take this to the next level. Um, and uh, really had an interest in women's health early on um, in my nursing career. 
um, but also as part of my nurse practitioner training, um, going through my women's health rotations and then adult and geriatric rotations. And um, just seeing the complexity of women's health and how lack of hormones affects them, but also how treating them with bioidentical hormones helps them. Mm -hmm. So seeing kind of both sides of the spectrum. No, that's great. Yeah. So let's start this episode with um, at the highest level, uh, I like to describe um, hormone, the hormone discussion by first defining what a hormone is. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure how you define hormones, but, you know, I, I generally say that hormones are produced in particular glands in our body. These glands that produce hormones are all part of the endocrine system mm -hmm. um, and are loosely referred to as endocrine organs, uh, whether that's your pituitary gland, your thyroid, your adrenals, your ovaries, the testes in a male, etc., um, all of them play a very, very, very important role. Correct. My sense is that most of the confusion around the majority of hormonal discussions is that people, people being physicians, people being non-physicians, like to think about and discuss hormones as if they exist in a vacuum. Right. But that is not the way the, the neurohormonal system is designed. It's an intricate web of um, what we call feedback loops. Mm -hmm. So in other words, if this, then that. Right. So Some are positive. Some are negative. Right. So some things, when they get stimulated, cause a net suppressive effect downstream. Mm -hmm. uh, in another pathway, you might have something that is stimulated that causes more stimulation. Right. You might have negative cause stimulation, you might have negative, be suppressive. And to be fair, um, it's not one of the hardest subjects in human physiology. I can remember as a medical student, um, not thinking this was hard, but man, is it confusing? <laughs> yeah. Like, okay, where, who's on second? Yeah. Kind of like, well, I, and they're all happening at the same time. Right. And so that's what makes it. And you don't figure that out till later. Right. Yeah. Because <laughs> we get taught it in a way where it's very vacuous. Yeah. It's very vertical. Like this is the thyroid. Mm -hmm. This is estrogen. This is. And it's only down the road. Uh, unless you're just incredibly brilliant and you make the connection or you're fortunate enough to have a professor weave in the context of other hormones into the learning it isn't until you get into clinical practice where you have some aha moments. Mm -hmm. And I know that was for me. Right. Um, there were aspects of the, the neurohormonal pathways that I, I'm like, oh, wow, look at the interplay here. This is really fascinating. But um, I think that it's really important to understand that none of these discussions are isolated. Right. They, they are, we have to understand them and then integrate them into what we already know and understand. And um, so I, I think just starting that conversation there, how do you – when you think about hormones or somebody out of the blue is like, Jen, what's the deal with hormones? Like <laughs> where is the first place you go in explaining? Is um, it something I think similar? very simply it's just they're chemical messengers. They're mm -hmm. little molecules that they're, – they're very busy in our bodies. They're, you know um, – 
sometimes peaking at different times of the month in a in a younger woman and troughing in another time i mean i don't know what the correct term is there but you know they're they all like you said they they all interplay with with each other Mm -hmm. um and um, they're important. And mm-hmm. unfortunately, as we age, um, they don't become less important, but they become less abundant. Mm-hmm. And that's where a lot of us feel the effects of not having enough hormone in our bodies. And there are a lot of there is a lot of confusion around this topic. Yeah. Um, so even if you had interest or curiosity the majority of people don't have a safe place to pursue conversations about what these hormones mean for them currently and moving forward in their health journey. Right. And simply, I, I, I simply hope that this episode would be able to help women begin to take that very first step in, okay, well, what are hormones? Mm-hmm. Why are they important? Which ones are we talking about? And and what can I walk away from um, this episode with some uh, like some some tactical plans, some right. strategies, and 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 we're going to give all that before we're done. Um, I think the the first place to start is that conversation around normal versus optimal. Yeah, I love starting there. I love that you love to start there because <laughs> it is the uh, foundation of understanding. Uh, hormones in, in, in males and females, but um, talk a little bit about what makes our practice different in the fact of how we manage hormones in a male or female. Well, we're specifically talking about hormones today, but this thesis I have around optimal health versus normal is really at the the foundation of, it's one of my core beliefs Correct. that the goal in life is not to survive. Mm-hmm. You know, ants survive. Dogs survive. They 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 have one goal, and that's don't die. Yeah. Um, humans, I believe that the human experience is capable of being experienced at an optimal level, not just a survival level. Mm-hmm. Uh, and w- we are the benefactors of this because of incredible convergence of scientific breakthrough, antibiotics, clean water, um, you know, science, technology, all, all converging in a 2019 environment when we're re- recording this in the late summer of 2019, where we are in uncharted territory. You know, humans, when you look at life expectancy of the human being. Uh, I might be off a little bit uh, on some of these. um, But from my memory, the average life expectancy was the low 20s in the Roman Empire. Oh, wow. When you move all the way through kind of the Dark Ages from the Roman Empire... Uh, and by the way, the fact that human beings have not killed each other off <laughs> at this point or died from disease is pretty remarkable. Right. Because in a world where there's no penicillin, uh, the plague wiped out one third of the planet's population in almost all of Europe. Wow. And penicillin would knock it out. Like, that's crazy to mm-hmm. me. 
moving all the way through the Dark Ages, the life expectancy moved, if I'm not mistaken, maybe to about 30. In the 1950s, the life expectancy was mid-40s. 1950. Wow. Like 60 years ago. That doesn't seem that far off. I guess I'm doing math here live. That's t- 70 years ago. Um, so s- from 1950 to almost 2020, mm-hmm. we are talking about um, exponential growth in life expectancy. Mm-hmm. So how have we gone from the average life expectancy being somewhere around mid-40s to virtually a doubling currently best numbers I can find are somewhere around 78 for women, 76 for men. But even those are getting upward pressure. I I feel like those are just almost old data. Mm -hmm. Um, Another one of my uh, things that I say all the time is 90 is the new 60. I really think that we are, we are now looking at a reality that we are going to be on this planet barring some unforeseen thing well into our ninth decade yeah, uh, and beyond a hundred. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a lot of implications there. There's financial, mm-hmm. relational, health. I mean, if you have to be alive for a lot longer, how you have to be productive, right? You know, th- this notion that you, you, you hang it up at 55 and you're, you know, you live 10, 15 more. That just isn't the case anymore. Right, right. And so I think it challenges a lot of our belief systems about what is possible, what is not possible, what we should consider normal versus what should be aspirational. Mm-hmm. You know, it's normal for a 50-year-old man in America in 2019 to be 50 pounds overweight, mm-hmm. mildly depressed, uninspired. Um, that's normal. right. But it's not optimal. But it is not optimal. Right. And it's normal because it's common, mm-hmm. which means we anything we can look out and say, well, this is – most people experience this. We just call it normal. Mm-hmm. But I'm just not interested in a normal life. I, I yeah. want an optimal life. I want to be the best Aaron Wenzel I can be. I want to be the best father I can be. I want to be the best husband I can be. I want to be the best physician. Like being a normal doc is not appealing to me. Right. And so I'm ranting a little bit on this normal versus optimal because I think it's at the core, whether we're talking about hormones or managing cholesterol or, you know, weight management or, you know, um, how you engage with your family. For me, I'm not interested in any conversations around normal. I'm Mm -hmm. interested in conversations about, yeah, yeah, yeah." no, I know that's normal, but there's an even better version Mm-hmm. Um, one of my favorite analogies is is speed, like mm-hmm. the speed of a vehicle. Right. If someone said, hey, Dr. Wenzel, is 27 miles an hour a normal speed for a car? And I say, well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess. If you're going through the park or a neighborhood or a school zone, that's a normal speed. Mm-hmm. But if I take that same normal speed of 27 and I go down the interstate, for a road trip, is that still a normal speed? Well, yeah, technically it's still normal. It doesn't magically in new context become not normal. It's still you in a vehicle traveling, 
but it's certainly not optimal. No. We, we have tons of examples where normal is – we don't accept normal as optimal. We adjust. Mm-hmm. Um, we now have vehicles capable of going 70 miles an hour. And by the way, we have a speed limit of 70 miles an hour. We're now in a world where we, we're not wrapping it up at 45. Yeah. And only an anomaly lives to be 60, 70. The average – I was looking at some data recently that said that if you don't have heart, heart disease or cancer – by the age of 60, 60, that you have a 90% chance of living to 90. Wow. Sign me up. I mean, and that's mass-produced data. That's mm-hmm. not me, me just pulling that out of the mm-hmm. sky. I actually believe that's just the tip of the iceberg, like I had mentioned. I, I think 90 – I think people right now have the opportunity to create – a ninth decade of life that looks very similar to what a 60 year old is experiencing currently. Mm-hmm. I, I just think that exists Yeah, uh, or it's possible mm-hmm. and it should be pursued. But the only way that's going to happen is if you don't get dementia, don't get heart disease, don't have a stroke, don't get cancer and you don't die from something dumb. Yeah. You know, like an accident, an accident. Yeah. You know, that is totally preventable texting and driving. Oh yeah. Um, you know, skydiving. Like, <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Jumping out of perfectly good airplanes. I don't, you know. So normal versus optimal is a great place to start this conversation yeah. around hormone optimization. What is the goal? Let's reverse engineer the goal. If, if we have a patient who feel and she feels great, she feels fine, she has no real concerns, then an optimal conversation probably won't mean much to her. Yeah. Which it's not good or bad. It just then maybe hormones isn't a conversation for her. Mm-hmm. However, if she has any interest in preventing osteoporosis, dementia, uh, uh, cancer, um, hormones better be something you're concerned about, right? Because postmenopausal women who become hormonally barren in in terms of testosterone, estrogen, progesterone are in incredible risks of developing these long-term chronic diseases of aging. Yes. That never were a discussion when you were old enough to have a child, teach them a trade, and by the 40s you were dead. Yeah. Like, it it doesn't matter. You don't even hit menopause. Mm -hmm. But now this woman hits menopause at 50, 55, and and you're telling me that barring some unforeseen things, she's going to live to be 90? That's the whole second half of her life. Yeah. Hormones are a very, very important conversation for anybody who's interested in having a conversation about optimal living, the best you can be. So I think that's where you start. I I think the next obvious place you go is this whole conversation about synthetic versus bioidentical. Absolutely. We talk about this all the time at nauseum sometimes, (laughs) but but it is – it's imp- it's an important enough topic because there's still so much confusion around what in the world is bioidentical, what in the world is a synthetic hormone. Can we can you, can you share how you think about this topic and and how you explain it to folks? Yeah, um, it's pretty simple actually. The um, you know the synthetic hormones are are um, processed in a laboratory or, or made by a drug company in a lab. And um, they're simply not, uh, they're chemicals, but they're not um, 
identical to the molecules that our bodies naturally make. Mm-hmm. Whereas the bioidentical hormones are um, compounded by a compounding Which, pharmacy. by the way, to be fair, is being created in a lab. Yeah, it is. Correct. But the net result is a lookalike versus the real thing. Right. Exactly. And and if I'm embarking on that journey, I, I would think that I would want to take the thing that is most like what my body produces. Well, that's the intuitive answer. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, obviously, intuitively, you would want to replace whatever you're missing or underproducing with the exact same thing. Yeah. Um, now, in, that's not the way we do science. And that's not the way we do medicine. We like evidence. Mm-hmm. Um But the inherent challenge around bioidentical hormones is that, and we've touched on this in in other episodes, the only reason anybody would ever do a study, whether that's the private sector, um, a big pharmaceutical company, or governments, Mm -hmm. those are the only three people who would pay for a study. First of all, they're very, very expensive. They're very hard to structure in a way that you could extract valuable information without being picked apart with Mm -hmm. flaws. Mm -hmm. They're time-consuming. If there's no economic upside to a study, it will not be done. Or if there's no political upside, it will not be done. The two driving forces for all medical research in 2019, they are being driven by economic forces or – governmental slash political forces, and oftentimes both. Yeah. And unfortunately, in the pharmaceutical world, all pharmacy, all pharmaceuticals are driven by one word, and that's called a patent. Mm-hmm. And things that you can patent, you own the patent, you can monetize. The challenge with anything that is the exact same molecule as the human being creates naturally is that you can't patent that which Mother Nature already has designed. Ah. So you have to alter it. Then you get a patent. Then you can sell it. Mm -hmm. Simply put, there are no – there is not a political or economic driver to ever do a significant study – on bioidenticals because there just isn't the economic return. Right. So we have to look at studies that have been done. And of all of the studies that have been done, and we did a deep dive on this on our previous episode on the women's health initiative, specifically around women's health and women's health issues as they pertain to risks, long-term outcomes and risk of hormonal therapy in postmenopausal women, We have to look at that and dig into what the data say, but we also have to understand this was all based on synthetic hormones and their risks. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think think we have to start with – and if you haven't listened to that episode, I I would encourage anybody listening to this who has interest in this topic to go back to our previous episode where Jen and I do um, a a deep dive into – the historical context of what was going on uh, in the country at the time that this – in other words, what were the political and economic drivers for creating the largest study ever around women's health likely will never be duplicated no. um, or outdone? Um, 
we understand you 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 will understand the context of why that took place, the basic structure of it, and the outcomes, and most importantly, what those outcomes actually mean for you, so you can think about the conversation we're having today, which is if you decide that hormonal therapy, bioidentical hormone therapy, is right for you, how do I need to be thinking about this? Yeah. What hormones are involved? Why are they important? What are the levels I should be shooting for? Those are all the things that we're going to go over um, very, very shortly. Um, anything else? I don't think so. Okay. I love that normal versus optimal conversation and also bioidentical versus synthetic because it, it just lays the foundation for the next mm-hmm. conversations about each hormone. Yes. So let's talk about the hormones, the primary hormones. When we talk about bioidentical hormone replacement therapy in women, there are really four hormones at play. Hormone number one is thyroid. Oh, yeah. And when it comes to um, thyroid disorders, we see thyroid disorders in women nine to one. Mm-hmm. Whether men, they know it or not. <laughs> whether they know it or not. We see, we see men with thyroid issues, but not nearly as common so it's almost an exclusively female, mm-hmm. which is fascinating to me. Yeah. Like, I can't think of one other thing, like another disease example where it only shows up in men. Yeah. Like 10 to 1, mm-hmm. 9 to 1. That, that's staggering to me. And that's just thyroid disease. There's an entire subcategory that doesn't even get counted in that, which we would call subclinical hypothyroidism, where they're not... They don't have a dysfunctional in, enough thyroid to actually be called thyroid disease but yet they're exhibiting all of the symptoms of mm-hmm. low thyroid. This is what we call subclinical hypothyroidism. And I would have to review the data, but I'm not even certain that those numbers are included in the nine to one ratio for thyroid disease, wow. which is, even if they are, it's, stu- it's a stunning number. If they're not included, it's even more difficult to wrap your head around. Mm-hmm. Jen, as a, as a clinician, what are the things that when you're talking with a woman where your radar is like, bing, 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 this is thyroid. Oh, yeah. Or, or, or I wonder if thyroid's at play. What are some of the things that you hear from women around thyroid? Well, a lot of symptoms are attributed to low thyroid, such as weight gain. That's a huge one, mm-hmm. um, especially when we were dealing with females in the medical bariatric practice. Um, you know, they were seemingly doing everything right eating right, exercising, but yet just couldn't turn the corner with those last 10 or 20 pounds or 5 or 10 pounds. Um, or, you know, they'd come to you and say, I've tried everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, to their um, um, to benefit of the doubt, they, they had. Um, thinning hair, um, you know, a lot of them, you can just tell by looking at them. <laughs> mm-hmm. Sometimes they'll be sitting in the uh, exam room with a jacket on or layered up. Um, in their clothing. So, so int- intoler- intolerance to cold is huge. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, their menstrual cycles are off. You know, a lot of times they're... In our younger women. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and uh, constipation, you know, that's a huge one. Um, but yeah, the, with the thyroid being a metabolic hormone, it's all of these kind of metabolic side effects or symptoms that we see mostly with thyroid in our women. And yeah. and sometimes they're quick to blame perimenopause or menopause on these, but th- it's not that. It's actually their thyroid. You know, I see that, but I also see a huge percentage of women when I ask, 
Have you ever looked into your thyroid? Mm-hmm. It's almost like I've given them permission to open a door that they want to kick open, but at some point in their history, they have been told it's not their thyroid. Yeah. They're like, oh my gosh, you know, I've <laughs> always felt my thyroid was off, but I've had it checked and they keep telling me it's normal. Yeah. And um, this is a this is a complex thing to discuss. There's actually a lot of controversy around this. Um, you could line up a thousand hormone experts, and there's going to be three camps. There's going to be the camp that I'm sitting in, where I'm saying this is the most one of the most undertreated, mismanaged diseases on the planet. Mm-hmm. And but yet we have the tools to treat it better. There's going to be a camp right next to my camp that says, "Don't listen to him. He doesn't know what he's talking about." This is the way we treat uh, thyroid disease. Mm-hmm. And then there's going to be a small camp that says, I have no idea, but um, all I know is you keep complaining and your numbers are normal. You must be depressed. Here's Prozac. Yeah. So, like, they just don't want to engage in the conversation. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and how can you uh, realistically have a productive conversation around thyroid in a 15-minute visit? Well, you know, th- that is a great point because I know – and I'd be curious how long it takes you. But when when I like tip over the, the thyroid conversation and say, hey, is there anything here? Mm-hmm. If a woman identifies with that, we're there for 25 minutes oh, yeah. just talking about thyroid. Mm-hmm. And so in a, in a primary care setting where you're seeing a patient every six minutes, there is zero opportunity to have a conversation about this with any meaningful dialogue. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have a lot of empathy. Yeah. I mean, I have empathy for the patient because they deserve to have a conversation about this. I have empathy for the provider because, look, their books are full. They're mm-hmm. seeing 30, 40, sometimes 50 patients a day. I mean, these are six, seven, eight-minute visits. Yeah. And we got to manage diabetes, thyroid, depression, get your immunizations, med refills, a rash, a bump, belly p- Like, <laughs> in six minutes? Yeah, it's the, the, impossible. It's impossible. And we're seeing the consequences of that. And um, I, I like to start many conversations, if not most, with understanding normal. Mm-hmm. And part of the reason there's a lot of confusion around thyroid is that, like the hormones discussion, the hormone discussion in general, it it's not difficult. It's just confusing. Mm-hmm. And it, there's a lot of moving pieces, and it's very hard to keep it straight. Well, and I think the other point is is that the labs are based on the averages of old, mm-hmm. sick people, right? So we're basically looking at your blood work. When you're sitting there telling us how symptomatic you are, fatigue is huge with thyroid. Mm-hmm. I forgot that before. Yep. We hear that from our females a lot, that they just feel tired. And we're looking at only your TSH, not us, but a normal provider, only at your TSH, maybe your free T4 if you're lucky, mm-hmm. usually never your free T3, and we'll get into all those, but and comparing those labs to the norm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it, uh, again, norm just means common. Right. And, and the average 57-year-old female is fatigued, yep. overweight, mildly depressed, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, all of these things. Yeah. And we will do future episodes 
on each of these four hormones um, where we do a deep, much deeper dive in the physiology, the treatment protocols, and, and things to look out for um, for the sake of this particular episode so that we can move through and touch all of them. What I really want to make sure that we're hitting home is that thyroid physiology is mismanaged by many of my colleagues mostly because they have forgotten. Mm-hmm. And it's not their fault that they have forgotten. It's because as soon as we're out of medical school, we are immediately shifted and conditioned to forget mm-hmm. that the active form of thyroid is active, is uh, free T3. Right. We are trained, as soon as we get into training out of medical school and residency, that the only test we screen for thyroid disease with one test and one test alone and that's tsh that is the thyroid stimulating hormone and as long as the thyroid stimulating hormone is normal we assume that your t4 which is your inactive form of thyroid and your t3 are fine there's no reason to go any further Mm -hmm. Uh, you might get an ambitious doc who is very suspicious about thyroid disease and they might order a tsh and a free t4 And if those two numbers are normal, they will say, whatever you're feeling is not due to your thyroid. Right. However, if you rewind back into second semester medical school, when we learn about thyroid physiology, about 90% of all thyroid hormone created by the thyroid gland is in the form of T4, the inactive form, and about 10% in T3, which is active form. And that if, as your body needs more T3, your body will convert that T4 to T3. Mm-hmm. That's assuming your body has an effective mechanism of converting that T4 to T3, which is the active form. The challenge I see that is so ab- apparent is that nobody is looking at free T3. Right. So what you're saying is with synthetic thyroid, synthroid, synthroid. we're treating... T4. Mostly T4, maybe a little T3, but we're assuming it converts to T3. Actually, Synthroid... It's all T4. It's all synthetic T4. Mm -hmm. There is zero attention given to T3. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm not going to dive into that in this episode. That might be on the thyroid episode. Mm -hmm. But if there is a woman listening to this and they they identify with any of the classic symptoms of thyroid, fatigue, inability to manage weight, general um, malaise, depressed mood, thinning hair, cold intolerance, irregular periods, thyroid is absolutely in the mix. We need you need to desperately have someone align with you that understands how to look at and to manage thyroid disorder. Mm-hmm. And the three tests that you need to be getting are your TSH, your free T4, and free T3. Right. And in the ranges of normal for T3, the upper limits of normal, depending on what lab you're looking at, is around four and a half, mm-hmm. 4.5. Mm-hmm. I find... And I think you would agree that most women, especially if they're symptomatic, if mm-hmm. you're not symptomatic and you're anywhere on the normal spectrum, then whatever, like, okay, yeah. then, then don't worry about your thyroid. Mm-hmm. But if you are symptomatic and you're anywhere n- except the upper quartile of normal, around four, 
or higher, you probably would benefit from optimization, yeah. from thera- th- therapy. Mm-hmm. And guess what? The therapy is not with Synthroid because <laughs> that's not the problem. People who have low thyroid don't feel low thyroid because they have low T4. They feel low thyroid because they have low T3. Yes. And giving someone T4 and just assuming it's converting is a gross undertreatment. This is why a lot of women will be told by their primary or even endocrinologist, hey, your numbers are perfect. Yeah, but I still feel bad. Yeah. Nobody's checking the T3. Yeah. It's, it's shocking to me. We're going to move on to the next hormone. But this is, this is a big deal for a lot, a lot of women. If you have any of these symptoms, you need to align with your doctor or find somebody who understands what you're walking through. And you need a thorough workup that includes a free T3 along with your free T4 and TSH. And we need to target upper quartile of normal for free T3. Mm-hmm. And for most labs, that's around a 4.0 or higher. Right. Um, awesome. So moving on to the next hormone, which is our friend estrogen. Well, that's a big one. You know, poor estrogen. (laughs) (laughs) Poor little estrogen. (laughs) Estrogen has taken the fall for a lot of um, the hormone discussion. Yeah. And again, we we dig into the historical reasons why – through the Women's Health Initiative um, in our previous episode. And again, go back and review that. I think it'll be really, really valuable if this is a topic that you're interested in. But essentially, uh, estrogen is a sex hormone Mm -hmm. produced primarily in a woman's ovaries um, to a lesser extent in her adrenal glands. Um, uh, Interestingly, excess visceral fat on both men and women produce estrogen as well. That's a different discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, but those are the three primary areas where we find estrogen being created. Um, estrogen's primary role is in the uh, in, around um, the feminization of uh, a young woman, mm-hmm. a young girl to a woman. So um, 11, 12, 13 years old, a woman has her first um, period, um, but leading up to that period, she's starting to get curves. She's starting to get, um, you know, the feminization of her physical body right. is starting to feel the inf- in, to shape because of the influence of rising estrogen levels to the point where her ovary then begins to release eggs once a month, uh, and she will. On the front half of her cycle, she will rise estrogen, which stimulates ovulation. Ovulation then triggers the ovary to start producing progesterone. Progesterone is the back half of a woman's cycle. And if implantation or fertilization takes place, progesterone then continues to rise through pregnancy. Progesterone is progestation or pro-pregnancy. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about progesterone in a minute. But most of the time, there is not a fertilized egg. And a woman then will get a signal that um, fertilization did not happen. Um, progesterone will fall. The woman will slough the lining of her uterus. We call that a period or menses. Mm-hmm. And that is the trigger for then, let's start this again. Estrogen will start rising again. And so it's this interplay between estrogen and progesterone from the moment a woman has her first period until she hits something called menopause, which is where it stops. And the ovaries stop producing all hormones. And so... During that period of time, what kind of woman do we have? You know, a 12-year-old woman through her 40s, typically, Mm -hmm. 
is pretty vibrant. Mm-hmm. Um, um, she's having regular periods. She's got strong bones. She feels pretty stable. No heart disease. No heart disease. Matter of fact, we look at women premenopausal. And a lot of people may not know this. If you have heart disease in your family, in a woman, less than 55, that is a very significant risk factor. Mm -hmm. Because when we look at all comers in the data, women under 55 just don't have heart attacks. Not usually. (laughs) Very rare. And the women that do, it's either profound family history, something going on. Uh, through the epigenetics where mm-hmm. the, the, the genes from mom and dad are coming in and putting you at this unbelievable risk, or you've had decades of smoking or diabetes or high blood pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, but we can't discount the, the protective effect of a woman who has an optimal hormonal environment. What's interesting is if you look at heart disease rates for women postmenopausal, they actually go from really low to outpacing their male counterparts who are also 55 years old. So it's actually, and the only thing that's changed is they've lost the cardioprotective effects of estrogen. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's clear Mm -hmm. the cardioprotective effects of estrogen. What are some of the things that you hear uh, from women who you're starting to think, man, I wonder if estrogen is at play here or you would benefit for some, from some estrogen therapy. Um, you know, it depends on their age, yep. um, because as you described, the, the younger females, obviously, they have enough estrogen, their ovaries and adrenal glands. Matter of fact, a lot of women are over-estrogenized. Yes, yes. They're very estrogen-dominant. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, um, but as perimenopause starts, which is when the ovaries secrete less and less estrogen, and, and I guess this conversation is in, is interesting of the woman's... Um, Light on the in the woman's lifespan, we our estrogen doesn't just decrease slowly over time like right. a man's testosterone de- decreases slowly over time. When menopause hits, the estrogens or the ovaries stop producing estrogen immediately. It could be really dramatic. Yeah, and so um, we see brain fog, <laughs> we see moodiness. Um, we see um, weight gain again, you know, just like with thyroid, we can see that weight gain and they complain about it in the middle, right? Mm-hmm. The, the, the pooch or the middle mm-hmm. uh, weight gain around the, the abdomen, anxiety, oh my goodness, depression. Yes. Um, and, the, and this is unfortunately when um, women are put on depression medicine mm-hmm. and that doesn't work and <laughs> doesn't work long term. Imagine that. For me, being perimenopausal, the first thing I noticed was sleep. Mm. I was waking up at like two and three in the morning just for no reason. No, No. not really hot flashes, but just this weird sleep deprivation. Um, That is something we really hear in our females um, (laughs) that they just can't sleep all of a sudden. Um, You know, uh, vaginal dryness and painful sex. I mean, it's hard to talk about that Mm -hmm. with somebody you don't trust. But unfortunately, that is really big. No, one of the one one of the not often talked about benefits of having optimal estrogen is vitality of the vagina. Yeah, I mean, you get atrophy Mm -hmm. without it. Yeah, and um, 
UTIs, painful intercourse. It's and a, some of our older ladies, it's the urinary incontinence that oh, they man. don't want to talk about, you know? Yeah. Um, so. Well, and it's a natural defense mechanism, too, for women because it's an entry point for infection. As an mm-hmm. ER doc, um, you know, I see this all the time. Actually, the most common reason for admission of a geriatric patient is a UTI, altered mental status. Mm-hmm. And what does every one of those women have in common? Um, vaginal atrophy. They have no protective mechanism for mm-hmm. entry of um, E. coli um, to, to enter the bladder. Right. And then you can. And, and peop- I mean, older women die from that. Look, I mean, sepsis is a whole other discussion. Yeah. But the amount of women that I admit for um, sepsis from a urinary source and ultimately have a really bad outcome, mm-hmm. it's a significant number. Yeah. And um, so sad. So. Who is estrogen for? Well, we won't really even start having the conversation until you're fully in menopause. So menopause is defined as 12 consecutive months without a menstrual cycle. Mm -hmm. And we we go another layer and we We check FSH levels. Mm -hmm. And we, we, we check the hormonal pathways to make sure that the stimulus hormone to stimulate your ovary is telling us that it's working overtime to get your ovaries to to produce, but they're just not. That's like the clincher for Mm -hmm. the diagnosis. At that point, we can safely move forward with women Mm -hmm. um, with estrogen therapy. And then what are the primary, how do women take estrogen? Well, we use the oral estradiol, Mm -hmm. which is the compounded bioidentical. The exact uh, molecule that your ovaries are now not producing. Correct. Mm -hmm. Yep. There's also other forms and creams, creams, patches, things mm-hmm. like that. But um, uh, the most cardio protection is provided by the oral estradiol. Mm-hmm. And there's good research on that. Yep. And then do we have target levels that we, we go for? So a woman listening to this could go to her doc and say, I'm going to start estrogen, whether it's pellets, shots, creams, oral. Um, I guess there's not shots for estrogen, but mm. um, what, what levels is she looking for? We shoot for typically optimal levels in the 75 to 100 range. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we see a lot of menopausal women come in with, and even perimenopausal women, we can tell when they're close to menopause because their estrogen levels are really low. Yeah. Um, but our menopausal women are in the tank yeah, usually. Zero. Yeah. Usually. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, north of 50, Typically, don't need to go over a hundred to get all the benefits. Yeah, um, and and um, but somewhere around fifty, seventy-five, yep. somewhere in there is typically where we we try to get our estrogen levels. Excellent. Um, some of the benefits of estrogen therapy that we talked, we've alluded to, and we'll put some links to um, these things into the show notes. Um, but you know, a uh, reduction of uh, cardiovascular disease, mm-hmm. dementia. Um, breast cancer even, mm-hmm. um, and, um, bone health, bone health, mm-hmm. osteoporosis, osteoporosis, fracture reduction, just a tremendous amount of, um, long-term health that has been very well documented, um, when you dig through the studies, mm-hmm. uh, next hormone is progesterone. We've kind of alluded to progesterone. It's kind of the dancing partner to estrogen <laughs> in a women's cycle. It's the back half of a monthly cycle. It is the hormone that gets triggered once ovulation has taken place because it's the preparation for fertilization and implantation of, um, a, a sperm and an egg. Mm-hmm. And, um, but, but other than, being involved in um, a woman's cycle, 
where do you see progesterone coming into the mix um, for, for really all adult women? Where, where is it? Where are the conversations around progesterone that you find yourself? Um, for for all adult women, um, really, it's it's important for the prevention of breast and uterine cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, you so it's know, protective. It's against, very protective. Yeah. Yeah. Um, absolutely. Absolutely a no go to mm-hmm. give a woman with a uterus estrogen without progesterone. Right. They can't have you one have without the other. You have to have the protective effects. It's very protective against the uh, towards the uterus. Mm-hmm. Um, do you find that a lot of women? We kind of alluded to it, but I'm just curious in your own practice. Do you find a lot of women tend to be estrogen dominant and would and benefit from leaving estrogen alone, but actually adding some progesterone mm-hmm. from a balance standpoint? For sure. Um, you know, it's it's the nasty hormone that's responsible for those PMS symptoms, right? Because um, too much estrogen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and not enough progesterone. And not enough progesterone. So, um, you know, if if you suffer from nasty PMS sim- symptoms, some progesterone supplementation can definitely help with that. Yes. Um, in the perimenopausal phase, for sure, it helps with sleep. Oh my yeah. goodness. So and even in menopause. But it's a very tranquil hormone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it kind of just balances your mood too. I kind of feel like the women that we we um help with progesterone just kind of come in feeling a little more balanced. Yeah. That's the 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 word that they use. Mm-hmm. Um just kind of feeling more balanced. I find it's an anxiolytic. Mm-hmm. It it really helps. And I don't know if it has anxiolytic properties or it just helps women sleep better therefore mm-hmm. having a more like so I don't know exactly the physiology there, but Mm -hmm. experientially, clinically, I see it as an incredible um, anxiety reducer Mm -hmm. uh, and a great sleep aid and just an overall mood stabilizer. Perfect for PMS. Um, Just an, it works absolute wonders Mm -hmm. in PMS when, when women are just like, woo, you know, (laughs) just, it can been very quickly. It can really smooth out that process. Um, what are some of the long-term benefits that, that we're, we're aware of with progesterone? Um, definitely helps, again, just like estrogen with bone health, yes. cardiovascular health, and prevention of the, the dominant female cancers of breast and, and uterine cancer. Yes. Um, really good for that. But, you know, uh, again, important to make the distinction, we're not talking about the synthetic. Yeah, again, you know, we go back to this Women's Health Initiative where – the, when, when all was said and done and all this, this, the data has been fleshed out, estrogen took the fall, the synthetic estrogen. Mm-hmm. But really, the real culprit, when you just let the data tell you what the data is telling you, the synthetic progestins were a major, major problem. Yeah. Um, far and away, the most contributory towards the negative outcomes that we found in the WH trial when you flesh out all the data. Mm-hmm. Synthetic progestins are very dangerous. Yeah. And um, however, bioidentical progesterone, the progesterone you make from your ovaries, is amazing. Yeah. And the data just isn't there to say that they're unsafe. Matter of fact, it's there to say that they're quite safe. And clinically speaking, the improvements that you see with women experientially is pretty remarkable. Mm-hmm. Um, Let's talk about a hormone that is commonly referred to as a, a male hormone. And, oh, boy. <laughs> and it's um, – it really doesn't do women justice because it, it is um, – although it is disproportionately found higher at higher levels in men, 
and it greatly affects the masculine experience. Mm-hmm. And we've created lots of content around testosterone therapy for men. But what a lot of people still feel very confused and unsure about is what does testosterone therapy have to do with females? Mm-hmm. And um, I have to tell you, um, it's probably the most underrated hormone for women. Mm-hmm. Whereas testosterone gets a lot of attention for men, obviously. Oh, yeah. It's like it's the, their dominant one. Yeah, yeah. No, it's like Yeah. It's you fix a lot of problems. That's right. The tide that raises all ships for That's men right. uh, in a lot of ways. But for women, this is an incredible tool to um increase lean mass. Mm-hmm. And and most women struggle with maintaining the uh, uh, acquiring lean mass Mm -hmm. and then maintaining it it is an eternal challenge to exercise in a way that you get muscles to grow Uh, part of that is a large part of that is because women just inherently have less testosterone but testosterone is made in a woman uh, in her ovaries just like estrogen Mm -hmm. Uh, and it just in a younger more vibrant version of a woman her testosterone levels are optimal. Mm -hmm. And as ovary function begins to decline or misfire or sputter or completely retire and shut down, even though that testosterone isn't a big driver in her experience, it becoming a suboptimal manifests in ways that can be quite impactful for a woman, Mm -hmm. a loss of libido, um, a loss of just drive mm-hmm. to to um, to exercise the the frequency and intensity of exercises we see drops as women tend to age and their testosterone levels go down their libido tends to flatten out or or, or decrease mm-hmm. um, but one of the things that really um, I get excited about for testosterone therapy around women is it it puts a little bit of the fire back in the belly yeah. of some women where especially women who historically have been higher drive women, mm-hmm. um, very, very driven. Um, you meet them and you get this sense that like, there's this version of them that would really like to go and achieve and conquer and be productive, but they're just not. And there's a lack of congruency with what they're doing and what you sense they the things that are important to them. Mm-hmm. And when we get testosterone levels for these women back to the levels of their early twenties, all of a sudden there's this light in their eye, there's this ambition, there's this fire, there's, um, and, um, that's exciting. Yeah. I mean, I, I can think of, we have one particular patient, um, she's approaching 50. Mm-hmm. She's an entrepreneur. She's very driven. Um, uh, in relatively great health, right? I mean, works out, takes care of herself, but just needed that extra push, I think, mm-hmm. um, and ended up climbing a mountain recently, <laughs> which is quite amazing. Which I need to talk to her about because yeah. that doesn't seem safe. <laughs> <laughs> well, she had a lot of ropes okay. Okay. <laughs> and she a did. helmet. Oh, well, safety first. That's right. Um, um, but yeah, I mean, uh, you know, would she have gone out and climbed the mountain without testosterone? Who knows? But I think, like you're saying, it it, it gives her the confidence and the mm-hmm. drive to go out and challenge herself and get herself out of her comfort zone to do something like that. Um, yeah, 
And I and I think the conversation that we have with our perimenopausal women and and you know women in early menopause is you need to add muscle like it's your job. Yes, because it only gets harder. That's right. You have a small window of opportunity to add this lean mass to your body that's mm-hmm. just going to help you burn calories at rest and keep your metabolism up and prevent and protect your infrastructure. Yes, protect your infrastructure from fractures and yes. and all of these things. So there's a, a window of opportunity and testosterone helps with that. Yeah, some of the other reasons testosterone should be on your radar as a woman um, uh, postmenopausal certainly uh, is the effect that it has on stimulation of collagen. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one of the things that is a big contributor to the aging, the look of aging on a face is the la- la- loss of elasticity in our face, which is directly linked to the, the loss or decreased production of collagen or the functionality of the collagen that you have. And testosterone is very stim- a potent stimulator mm-hmm. of collagen. Um, it helps with hair, skin, wrinkles. Um, also incredibly important for bone health. As important as estrogen is to bone health, testosterone is three times as potent of laying down new bone as estrogen. Wow. It's an osteoporosis, especially for our smaller, more fit women mm-hmm. as they get older. This is a major, major killer of women. Um, probably the most underrated killer of women yeah i think how is many hip fractures do you see in the er all the time every <laughs> yeah. shift almost yeah. almost every shift there's mm-hmm. a hip fracture and the sad truth is i know that the data say there is a 50 percent 12 month mortality with these ladies yeah that means one in two will die in 12 months as a consequence or complication of that hip fracture whether mm-hmm. it's an infection a pulmonary embolism pneumonia they become septic because they're laying up in bed mm-hmm. it, the human experience is meant for us to be powerful, fast, and in motion. And when we break our hip, that is the hinge, the primary hinge point of being upright. Mm-hmm. We are not in motion. And when we're not in motion, everything breaks down. Yeah. It is a major, major, major contributor to mortality. Uh, and it tends to happen in women disproportionately more than men Mm -hmm. certainly happens in men men Mm -hmm. break their hips but not to the extent that women do yeah um and that's because they have not had testosterone at the levels men do so men have denser bones Mm -hmm. um, and women just have a very small window to lay down new dense bone Mm -hmm. and trivial trauma can break hips in the right person so it's a it's a big big deal uh I want to. I just realized we didn't talk about optimal levels for progesterone. What are some of the optimal levels that we try to get our progesterone gals to? I believe we start at ten. Ten to thirty. Does that sound yeah, right? Yeah, ten. Ten to thirty. I, yeah. I think for me, I, I kind of shoot for around twenty. Mm-hmm. So for for those gals that are thinking about progesterone, we we look for an optimal level of around twenty. Certainly, that's not hard and fast. If you're still feeling symptomatic, we can go up much higher than that. Um, the real downside to progesterone is that you might get a little sleepy. Yeah. That's why we take it at night. <laughs> yep. and, and you just have to kind of work through the, the sleepiness mm-hmm. of it. Of it. Um, um, so getting back to testosterone, mm-hmm. if, if I'm a woman and I'm listening to this, I, I would typically think of testosterone as the male hormone, right? Yep. Um, bodybuilders come to mind or yeah. really muscular guys. What, 
you know, when we meet with our female patients, some of these um, issues kind of come up. Like, yeah. well, I grew a beard. Yeah, I don't want to get hairy. Yeah. I don't want to get too buff. <laughs> I don't want to get too buff. But we use doses of testosterone in very little amounts in our females. It's a fraction yeah. of what their male counterparts would, would be at. And, yeah. you know, I, I always say that testosterone, whether you're a man or a woman, just makes you more of who you are. Mm-hmm. So if you're not a very hairy person by nature... You're not going to magically just start growing hair. Right. If you tend to be a hairier person, both man or woman, and you are on testosterone therapy, you will probably stimulate some hair growth. Mm -hmm. Hair follicles are sensitive to testosterone. So, you know. But the, the, the fear that you're going to magically grow a beard or like big traps and look like a guy, it's just unfounded. Yeah. Uh, it just doesn't happen. Um, even our women who are at the highest level in our practice, I mean, if anything, they feel <laughs> it's amazing how good they feel. They say, don't take my testosterone Don't take away. it away. <laughs> I would have never expected this, but yeah. don't. This has been a game changer for right. me. Don't, don't take it from me. So yeah. that's been fun. Let's talk about, um, let's talk about who estrogen isn't for because we talked about who it is for we talked about that you know premenopausal or perimenopausal women should stay away from estrogen because they're already probably estrogen dominant right but other than that are there some groups of people who stand out to you hmm what about good question obviously active cancer oh yeah yeah and that's true for testosterone as well Mm -hmm. um Nobody with active cancer should be pursuing testosterone or estrogen therapy. That's just, it's just a no go. Yeah. Um, So that's personal or family. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, obviously this is each person's journey to consider and you need to loop in your personal physician to get your head around this. I would tell a patient I was treating if she had a personal history of breast cancer um, without any debate if she had an estrogen sensitive breast cancer it's forget it yeah matter of fact that woman's going to be on an estrogen blocker maybe for her whole life mm-hmm. anyway mm-hmm. so like testosterone or estrogen therapy's out yeah the real the only person that should be a conversation about is well if you had a history of breast cancer but it wasn't estrogen receptor positive? Do I still qualify? And I'm going to be honest with you. If I had a patient like that, I'm not sure Yeah, that I would loop in. pretty risky. I probably wouldn't take that risk. Mm-hmm. Not without understanding more about her profile. I would need a consultation with her oncologist. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, that's probably something I wouldn't rush to do just because there's so much unknown still. Mm-hmm. So really any history of breast cancer, I think estrogens probably doesn't feel safe. Yeah. Um, I think that any woman with a very strong, like super strong family history of breast cancer um, needs to be really considered. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, Now I have plenty of women who I do estrogen therapy for who have a family history, but we're on it. Yeah. We have mammography 
very well documented and we're on it and very paying very, very close attention because of the family history. It cannot be ignored. Right. Um, it's, so it's not a hard no, but it's a tread very carefully for me mm-hmm. uh, with estrogen. What if I'm a, a woman considering pregnancy? Uh, well, then progesterone is fine. Really, progesterone and thyroid yeah. are really the only things that are safe. Testosterone's off limits for any woman who's trying to get pregnant. Now, women who are childbearing ages can take pr- testosterone, but the moment you need to be taking precautions to not get pregnant, and the mm-hmm. moment you find out you're pregnant, you you got to stop. Yeah, it's and very t- harmful to the it, fetus. Yeah, yeah, and that has been well documented. Yeah. Um, and so, testosterone therapy for a woman is really excludes pregnancy Mm -hmm. do do not take the like we have young childbearing age women who take testosterone and they feel amazing but they're also taking precautions to to not become pregnant and should they become pregnant we are immediately stopping yeah and so that's something that each you know a woman that young would have to consider yeah most women however who we treat are 35 or older Mm -hmm. and the majority of them are either done extending their family or they're kind of actively debating, are we going to do one more? So we don't sprint right into testosterone with the younger females who are still debating about adding family members. Yeah. So just be cautious of that if you're on the younger side of things. But most women who are 40, certainly 45, um, there might be a handful of women who are still considering, and, and we have a couple yeah. who are like, I'm not sure. And they're whole, and then let's just pump the brakes. Yeah. Testosterone will be there. we got the whole back half to play. Mm-hmm. Like, we can do that. So I think active cancer of any kind takes testosterone and estrogen off the table. Yeah. Um, not I think, I know. Yeah. Uh, any previous history of cancer that has been treated – um, needs to be treaded on very, very lightly. I think if you had a history of that cancer being an estrogen-sensitive breast cancer, negative. Yeah. You're not doing it. Nope. Um, if it was an estrogen not sensitive, not uh, est- if it was a non-estrogen-sensitive breast cancer, I think it's not a hard no, but it's be very, very careful. Mm-hmm. Um, and then y- younger, childbearing age, be careful with um, testosterone. I think uh, progesterone's kind of pretty benign and mm-hmm. safe all the way through the three phases of a woman's adult life, you know, pre peri and post menopausal, yeah. um, and could be used as needed for PMS mm-hmm. as needed for sleep aid as needed for mood stabilizing. It's, it's, it's a dynamic, uh, and safe and generally well tolerated with the main complaint we get is like, I'm so tired. <laughs> I'm sleeping too well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can't get up. Yeah. Mo- most women, that would be like, wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> you mean you mean you wake up and you've been sleeping hard? <laughs> um, this has been really good. I it's know been so for, good. For the listener, we, we're just like drinking from a fire hose here. We're, we're hammering for major, major hormones. Um, we're also um, talking about historical context we're talking about optimal versus normal we're talking about bioidentical versus Mm -hmm. synthetic we're covering a lot of ground here hopefully this will feel a little bit more like a layer of an onion as we continue Mm -hmm. to talk about these things we'll dig deeper into an episode fully committed to each one of these hormones where we'll touch on these things again and anchor in some concepts oh levels of testosterone for women 
six to eight? Yeah, I really find that most women, um, and this is kind of like how goofy labs are, basically from zero to 10 is normal. <laughs> right. I, I mean, you could have no testosterone and that's normal, or you could have 10. How, how is there a 10x swing? Mm-hmm. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Most women are going to perform and feel and get the benefits of testosterone north of five. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think there's a curve between five and 10 where most women are going to land. Um, there might be a couple of women who get to four or five and say, oh, that's, that's fine. I feel great. Yeah. That's all I need. There might be some that get to 10 and be like, I'm just getting started. This mm-hmm. feels amazing. Yeah. Can we go higher? And yeah, there are some women that can tolerate and demand a higher level for their op- their biochemistry, their mm-hmm. DNA. But I would say five to 10 would be the target for testosterone, um, a free testosterone in mm-hmm. a woman to be checked. So you can add that to your list. Um, again, if you haven't gone back and listened to the WHI, tr- the WHI trial, I would encourage you to do that. It gives a lot of the historical context and framework to – uh, for, for all of the confusion around hormone therapy, um, and, and um, hopefully we do a decent job of clearing that up. Um, we hope you enjoy this episode. Please share this with anybody who you think might benefit from a, um, the information around hormone optimization for women. It's a really, really big deal. Um, we couldn't be more bullish about it. We couldn't be more excited about what we do, what we get to do. We have the privilege to mm-hmm. help women feel better and live a long time and hormonal optimization is really one of the critical pillars in in how we can achieve that yeah any famous last words from jen justice i think the best place to start is to know your levels right yeah get those levels checked absolutely know exactly where you're starting from and then find a provider that you trust that can help know your numbers and align with somebody a provider who has a value system that is aligned with yours and who has the time and the bandwidth to Mm -hmm. listen to your unique goals, your unique challenges and architect a plan and a protocol that helps you achieve those goals. I think that's kind of the one, two step. Yeah. And, and hopefully the notes that you've been able to take in the the show notes that will be uh, with this episode will be a resource for you to reference. Um, and, um, yeah. So I hope this was useful and, um, We'll talk to you again real soon. Take care. I want to thank you so much for your attention. Listen, I don't take it for granted. It means the absolute world to me. You can find out more about today's episode at brentwoodmd.com forward slash podcast. There you'll find the show notes, all the related links to this episode and tons of other resources. If you haven't already subscribed, please do so. And if you've already subscribed, then it would mean so much to me if you left a review. If you think we'd be a good fit to work together, or you would just simply like to know more about the concierge services that I provide my private clients, email us at membership at brentwoodmd.com. And now for the obligatory disclaimer. This podcast is for general information only and does not constitute the practice of medicine or the giving of medical advice as no doctor-patient relationship has been formed. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should seek the advice of their own medical professional providers.